When you work in education leadership, you don't get off at five o'clock. Your mind is always on the clock, thinking of ways to solve problems for your students, parents, and teachers. On the Clock is your go-to podcast to learn valuable insights from education leaders across the United States. I'm your host, Todd Dallas-Lamb, former White House appointee to the U.S. Department of Education, and we are now On the Clock. Welcome back to On the Clock. I am your host, Todd Dallas-Lamb, and with me today is Superintendent of Jefferson County Public Schools in the great state of Kentucky, uh, Dr. Marty Polio. Dr. Polio, how are you today? I'm great, Todd. Appreciate you having me on. Is Kentucky, uh, is that a state or a commonwealth? You know, there's like six or seven of them. Kentucky is actually a commonwealth. Well, there you go. Well, we got that straightened out. That's right. Um, so, you know, your, your district is, is a large one. I think, uh, well over a hundred thousand students making you somewhere around top 15 size wise districts in the country. It, it actually encompasses most of the greater Louisville area. Uh, tell me a little bit about your time at the, at, at, at the district and, uh, and a little bit about Louisville that people may not know. I, I think most of us know just enough to be dangerous about that, that beautiful city, uh, on the river. Um, but also, you know, we all know about the Kentucky Derby, but what else is there about Louisville that's, that's cool? Well, Todd, first of all, I'm impressed. You said Louisville like a local. That's right. So you know you're a local when you say Louisville and not Louisville. Yep. Um, and so congratulations on saying <laughs> it like a local does. That's the first Thank big you. challenge. But, Thank you. Uh, it's, it is a community of nearly one million citizens when you talk about the metropolitan area. Uh, so large, very diverse. We're on the Ohio River. Actually, the Falls of the Ohio is, is how Louisville was created, um, which was, um, you know, settlers coming down the Ohio River. And there is actually a falls right on uh, between Indiana and Kentucky. And that's how Louisville settled. Um, and so working, you know, those actual falls building locks uh, was a big part of the development of the city of Louisville. Uh, but it's a beautiful city. Most people know, you know about the home of KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken. People know about Louisville Slugger, um, the bat. People know the Kentucky Derby. This is horse country, obviously. Uh, but we also, um, you know, have some very famous people. Our most famous graduate from public schools here in Jefferson County is Muhammad Ali. Went to Central High School right here in Jefferson County Public Schools. So we're very proud of this community, the diversity in this community, uh, and the support for public education. I've been to the Muhammad Ali Museum in in, in the city, and in, if you are into boxing at all, or maybe if you're just into the incredible civil rights movement that happened along the way as he was forging a career uh, from a kid in Louisville to the, from the 50s to all the way really to the late 70s, uh, and all the changes that he saw and in some cases helped drive uh, it really is an educational experience. I'm guessing a, a lot of your students ha have to go to that that museum. Yeah, we have a lot of events there. It's a great event space for us. And I know a lot of our kids take field trips to the museum. How long have you been with the district? So I've been in the district for 26 years. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about how I got here. I mean, oh. I was uh, going to be a college basketball coach. That was my original goal um, and what I wanted to do. My dad was that. So I got into coaching. I uh, wanted to have my own team as a high school basketball coach, and I was actually getting my master's degree at Eastern Kentucky University, which gave me a Kentucky teacher certification, and wanted to come to Louisville, the bigger city in Kentucky. It is by far the biggest city in Kentucky. And there was one job open at our highest poverty school, Shawnee High School, 
uh, in what is our highest poverty area, uh, highest percent minority area. Went and was a basketball coach there and loved it, loved every minute of it. Uh, spent about three years as a basketball coach before I decided I was going to move on to something else. Got tapped on the shoulder, as many school leaders do, and said, you know what? I think you'd make a good principal. Went back to school to get my principal certification at the University of Louisville and got on that pathway like many do from assistant principal at a local school, Wagner High School. My whole experience was in high poverty schools and then became principal at uh, Jefferson Town High School here locally, a high school of about 1,200 students. Spent eight great years there really learning what, you know, solidifying my beliefs about education. And then uh, the superintendent asked me, as being a successful principal to take over the second lowest performing school in the state uh, and turn around that school, Doss High School, which is a local high school here of about a thousand students, uh, about 90% free and reduced lunch. Uh, took over that school, had two fantastic years. My only ask of the superintendent was I get to bring my own team, which I did. Had probably two of the best years of my career there. Then we had a superintendent opening. Two or three people said no to the to the interim superintendent position from outside uh, that seemed like the board was kind of at a, you know, stymied as to what they wanted to do. And someone said, let's ask a principal. And so they asked me to apply. Um, and I did apply for the job. Uh, thought it was just going to be kind of a, you know, one of those, okay, we're going to interview a principal. Ended up the next day getting the job. And probably had the biggest oh crap moment of my life going from being a principal of a school to being a superintendent of a district of a hundred thousand students, $1.8 billion budget and 155 schools. But like what I always do, you know, I, I say this superintendents are leaving the profession at alarming rates all across America, especially at larger districts. I can't imagine doing this Todd at a district where I didn't have roots where, you know, so many kids, thousands of kids over the 26 year career that I still see on a regular basis in the community and probably thousands of teachers that I know. I don't go into a school rarely without seeing someone that worked for me or had some kind of, you know, connection with me over the years. And so I care deeply about this. I dove into the interim superintendent position, went after the full position, got it. And I'm now in my fifth year as the full superintendent, six year total in the position, but it's really because I love this district so much and want to want it to be successful. It's uh, it's so nice to hear somebody who who really is from the region and and puts down roots. A, a lot of your contemporaries, uh, I've noticed, are are taking jobs far away from where they they were working before they became a superintendent. I think that has a lot of challenges for superintendents who don't know. Um, how to say Louisville correctly or know the politics of of the region because your your business is is very political. Yeah, without a doubt. And I'll say it took me two years. I knew the schools. It took me two years to get into every single school because as a superintendent, you can't walk in, shake a couple hands and leave. You got to visit every classroom, you know, every office, talk to people. And so two full years to get into every school, but I knew it. Um, and But I also knew, you know, there's there's benefits and challenges to coming from within the district. You know, first I'll say the challenges are you become the boss of many of your colleagues, um, which is becomes a challenge. So I became, you know, the supervisor, the boss of many of the, the principals that I worked with, the assistant superintendents I worked with. 
and that comes with its challenges. The benefit, though, is, you know, if I'd come from outside, I would estimate two to three years for me to have a complete understanding of the needs of, for change in the district. And, yep. you know, I knew those. I had a grasp of it. I had to learn the position somewhat and how to make change. But I knew I had a good feeling of the changes that we needed to make in the district. And that did not take me three years to do that. Can I take you back to the transition you made from basketball coach? Um, you know, I, I played a lot of basketball. I've, I, I've, I've been around sports my whole life. It seems to me a coach um, has their most satisfying moments not when the star player does star player things, but when they take a player who starts at a certain level and, and and through motivation, through hard work, through leadership and coaching, that player has the most growth of any other player. I, I've known a lot of coaches that take more satisfaction in, in creating that growth for maybe a player that was struggling or not as, as accomplished than any other thing they've done. And it seems to me that that, is probably a very similar transition over to teaching and being a principal in a high poverty uh, school, it, finding that opportunity for growth and being so probably satisfied with being able to show leadership that allows that growth to happen. Yeah, I, you know, it, as a principal, I believe this. And I, I, I have a, um, when I was a principal and now as a superintendent, I have a deep commitment and belief and the job of a leader is coaching and feedback. And so if you're going to improve systemically across the district, yeah, we've got to change policies. We've got to change some practices. But what we have to do more than anything is coach, positively coach up those around us. And I think I brought that from coaching and it's similar to what you're saying. Um, you know, and I say this as a principal and now as a superintendent, the thing I wanted more than anything in educators is will over skill. You know, yes, there is skill required to do this job, but it is a job of will and passion and bringing it every single day. And if I could take a brand new teacher that had that and bring them into the school or the district and then see them improve over time, for, go through first year struggles, continue to get better, as long as they keep that will and passion, then I knew they were going to be successful. So I think it's very similar to what you're talking about as a coach. Yeah. Are you, um, you know, I've, I've been going to conferences. There's a lot of f fall and winter conferences going now in our, in our business uh, of education. And I, you know, one of the main conversations is this, this teacher shortage. Has that been a problem that uh, you're facing and seeing as well in, in Louisville? It's a significant challenge for us without a doubt. And I said it was beginning before the pandemic. So this is not just an issue of the pandemic. It was exacerbated by the pandemic, but we have about 250 vacancies. We have about 6,500 teachers. So we have about 250 vacancies, but we're short on substitute teachers. We're short on support personnel. It is just a, a major challenge every single day when you're dealing with those, those shortages. You've said you've been with the district 26 years. I know you have an initiative called Future State. Uh, I imagine, you know, 26 years ago, the, the level of technology was dramatically different than it is today. What, what have some of the, uh, the changes you've had to make and, and challenges you've had to overcome to get to what, what Future State is? And, oh, by the way, give us a little bit of an uh, overview of what that is, that what that initiative entails. Yeah, it's one of the things I'm most passionate about, Todd, and I appreciate you asking about that. Um, essentially, you know, the first couple years, the interim time I got in this job, 
in my first year, as most superintendents will tell you, we're faking it well. We're learning the job, you know, learning how to navigate everything. And so those first year and year and a half, I was doing that. But I also really took a deep look at the district itself. And I came in the district in 1997. And what I realized was that in, you know, that 23, 24 years, 22 years since I had been in the district, significant, the foundation had not changed whatsoever. So initiatives have come and gone, instructional programs have come and gone, professional development, all of these things had come and gone throughout the district, strategic plans. But really, when we looked at it, the foundation of the district had not changed. And so that's not good for any organization. You know, we were talking in 1997, you know, barely having email or cell phones at that time to be in 2019, you know, the difference in how we teach and learn had to change. And so started talking to other districts about the things they do and saw that that we hadn't changed things, brought together a leadership team for about a three day retreat and said, if we want outcomes like we've never had before for for students, what are the th- what are the problems? And we dug into what we called our current state. You know, what are the things that are not that we need to change? And then we built out over that three days what a future state would look like. So let's fast forward to 2025. And if we make these changes, what the district will look like. And essentially, we found about five or six areas. We kind of gathered themes of areas that needed change. First was student assignment, the way we assign kids to schools. I think here in Jefferson County, which is the current one we are on, it is we have changed it now and we'll start in the fall. Probably the most racially inequitable system that's ever occurred in any district that dates back 40 years without change. And so we were asking our kids from highest poverty areas, students of color, to really have on their shoulders the onus of diversity in schools. And it was negatively impacting student outcomes. So our only kids who didn't have choice were predominantly black students from our highest poverty area. We needed to change that. When, and when we you did. say choice, um, they, they weren't being offered choice of, of schools or they, weren't, they just weren't accessing choice. So essentially what it did was took our highest poverty area of town that was all students of color, yep. chopped it into about uh, 20 different areas. And so, for instance, a child who was not accepted to a magnet, their reside school or where they go, was not close to home. They had to get on a bus and right. leave the community for 20 or 30 miles in order to go to school. Parents couldn't access that. We wanted to keep that as an option for the families, but also allow a close to home option um, as well, which the second part of our future state was funding our high poverty schools. For years, we had funded all students the same way. And we wanted to fund our high poverty schools um, so that those students who had the least amount of resources in their home would have the most amount of resources in their schools. Do that as a budget and supplementary income, PTA funding, booster club funding, all of those things that high poverty schools across America don't have. And that was a big, huge one for us. Um, extending learning time for kids. And so we essentially had no summer learning programs for kids, no after school we found some of the best districts in America were serving 10 to 20,000 kids during the summertime, no matter what their home life was like. We've built that up to now 10,000 students being served in four to six week summer programs, which was huge for us, but also 
you know, after school and, and extending those hours so that, that we have the opportunity for kids to do that. Teaching um, our workforce development, our leadership and teaching workforce development um, to create a teaching workforce that looks like our student population to pay our teachers more than any other district around us. The same with our leaders and to differentiate pay in our high need schools. We wanted to make sure we were a district that as teachers got seniority, they moved to the to the lower poverty schools. So we wanted to provide additional compensation for teachers that were working in our high poverty schools. Teaching and learning was obviously a huge part of that, how we teach and learn, how we provide students with standards-based instruction, standards-based grading, and then finally technology, breaking that technology uh, barrier, you know, that divide where kids that don't have access to computers and the internet, we made sure every kid in JCPS had access to a laptop and internet at all times. And so those were the six areas um, we, we laid out, we laid a plan, but this was gonna cost us additional funding. No one had ever gone to the community and said, and I, I did forget, Todd, excuse me, our facilities was the final one, which we have the most embarrassing facilities that we have 35 schools that are past end of life. We've only built four schools in the past three decades in this community. And so I said, and we said our kids deserve better with brand new innovative spaces. But all of this was gonna require funding from the community. We were going to have to ask the taxpayers of Jefferson County to increase their property taxes to pay for this. Um, and so I made the case, I felt like we were in a good spot. And guess what, March of 2020 hit and we went into COVID. And yep. so I really thought at that point, we had lost that, we couldn't do it. But looked myself in the mirror and said, my job is not to be popular. My job is to do what's right for kids. So we went ahead and asked the community for that tax increase. We eventually won that tax increase, which brought about $55 million into our district so that we could fund Future State. So we are now in almost full implementation of Future State and can't wait to see the changes and outcomes. Is this just the community uh, that of Jefferson County that, that pitched in or did the state apply resources as well? Uh, no, it was just local uh, in Jefferson County. Unfortunately, we have what's called seek funding here, which means the higher property taxes you have, the more you send out to other districts. So we actually had to send out some of that to other districts across the state. But this was a complete ask. I continue to obviously uh, lobby our legislators for more funding as well. Uh, especially when it comes to teacher raises. We're going to have to do that nationally. Uh, but we asked our local citizens to pay for this. Very controversial, took a lot of hits on that. But in the end, I think it was uh, the most important thing we could do for our kids. What, what's the per pupil allocation of average in Kentucky? And then what were you able to bring it up to in some of your more impoverished schools? Um, so you, um, I don't have that right in front of me, Todd. I think it's, you know, in the neighborhood of, uh, do you, um, it's about 1800, a student, I believe, yep. um, what we wanted to get our students, um, you know, up to, and really we funded on class size. So our higher poverty schools, bringing down our class size to about 20 kids per adult or class, 
maybe having two in a classroom where our lower poverty schools would have 27 or 28 in the classroom. Um, and so that was a big thing. We are for the first time next year, uh, any teacher who teaches in our higher poverty schools will get an additional $8,000 stipend, uh, which is already attracting a lot of teachers to move into that, but also providing a lot of programming support for schools as well. Well, look, I mean, it's it's no secret. If you want a better defensive coordinator for your football team, you need to pay somebody more money um, to get them to come to your school. And the same the same applies for just about everything. You know, money is it's not the answer to everything, but if you want, if, if there's a market out there and you have a teacher shortage, I think the first answer that most people are going to come to is we, if we want something better, we're going to have to pay for it. Yeah. And I said this, Todd, my goal was not, I don't, you know, as a principal of a high poverty school, I didn't want teachers just coming for money. But what I do want is if I'm a high poverty teacher that has a math vacancy, and I take applications for that math vacancy and I come out of my office to interview to bring back an applicant and I only have one there. It's a very scary road to travel to say I'm going to say no to this teacher who I believe will not be very effective if I don't think there's another candidate. So right. my goal is that the that the principal will have four or five applicants and they can make the best decision as which, which candidate is, is best to fit our culture here in the school. And so just providing the school and that principal choice in who they hire is is a huge thing for us. When you were looking at uh, models, you said that when you when you wanted to go from current state to future state, you looked at some other districts and what they were doing. Off the top of your head, do you remember what, what were those districts? Were they also in Kentucky? Were they national? Did you just know somebody that you were admired and were, were, were trying to pick their brain? So we really worked more through the Council of the Great City Schools, yep. which is a collaboration of about the 80 top school districts in America based on enrollment. So um, really looking at districts like us. So I'll give an example. You know, I believe this, that high poverty kids, kids in high poverty schools need access to summer programming. That doesn't mean summer school. Yes, we are supplementing it with reading and math. But just having kids engaged in high quality summer programming that students of means already have was so important. So we went to Boston Public Schools and saw their summer program and how they collaborated with the community to get kids into fun activities that are instructionally based, but things that kids love like robotics may be an example of, but so having fun with them doing that and then supporting math and reading along the way. And so we went to Boston and took a look at their, you know, 10,000 students that were coming in every, and we felt like, okay, we only have a couple hundred kids in summer learning. How do we build up to that 10,000? And so we've been able to do that since that time based on our observations in Boston public schools. We've looked at facilities at multitude of Districts uh, are resourcing our high poverty schools. We went to Miami-Dade and looked at how they support their office that oversees their higher poverty schools. Um, so we really kind of uh, spent a good amount of time all around the nation looking at best practice. You mentioned Council of Great City Schools. I, I want to say I saw your name on the list of finalists for their prestigious Superintendent of the Year Award. Do I have that right? 
That is correct. Did not make it as the winner, but I was a finalist. Well, it's a, it's an honor to be even considered uh, for a national award like that. And I really can't thank you enough for being on the show today. I enjoyed getting to know a little bit more about Louisville. Uh, and I encourage everybody, that if you ever get a chance to, to go visit that town, to go take in the flavors of that place, the history, the food, the museums. And yes, the horse racing. I've done that too. Dr. Polio, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Todd. It's been an honor. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. On the Clock is part of the Stratagos Podcast Network. To view the entire lineup of shows, please visit us at stratagosgroup.com. See you next time.